Yeah, you can clap. That's okay. That was beautiful. All right. Well, last week, if you were with us, we started a new series of messages that we're calling Awake. And uh, if you missed it, just so you know, what we're doing in this series is we're looking at the church, and we're looking at the church when it's working right, or to put it differently, when it's awake to what Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of the church, who is the head of the church, who is the Redeemer of the church, who is the King of the church, is by the Holy Spirit doing. And we talked about what that is. We said that what Christ is doing by His Spirit is he's building his kingdom, that that is the goal, that that is the project, that that is the dream, and that that and nothing short of that is the vision of our Lord. It's the vision of the kingdom. And that means, practically speaking, that the vision of Christ is bigger than the vision of just the forgiveness of our sins. And I say just carefully because that's a really big deal. His vision is bigger than just freedom from shame and guilt. His vision is bigger than just inclusion or adoption or membership in the family of God through faith in Him. His vision is bigger than just knowing today that if you were to die, that you would spend eternity with God in heaven. That's a really big deal, but His vision is bigger than that. His vision is bigger than that of a redeemed people. His vision is that of a redeemed everything. It's of a new heaven. And it's of a new earth. And that is what Jesus Christ lived to establish. And that's what he died and was buried and was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven to establish. That's what he began to build by the power of the Spirit in his life and ministry on this earth. It's what he continued to build through his apostles and his people in the first century as we read about them and will read about them in the book of Acts. And it's what he continues to build today through people and churches that are wide awake to what his Spirit is doing. The bottom line being that you and I are called to be kingdom builders, which then raise the question of, well, you know, I mean, how do you do that? How do you build the kingdom of God? Well, again, we got that it's by the Spirit, but practically speaking, what does it look like? And we said last week, look, we build the kingdom, first of all, when we do what Jesus did. And what did he do? He fed the hungry. He healed the sick. You know, I mean, he he raised the cause, if you will, of the oppressed. He gave a voice to the voiceless. He fought injustice. Jesus not only dealt with sin, he had dealt with the effects of sin. And he came to people, person after person after person, whose life was devastated by sin. And he didn't just say, here's how to be forgiven of sin. Now, he did say that, and then he died on a cross to make sure that they are and will be, through faith in him, forgiven of sin. But he also dealt with their sin-devastated lives. And the reality is that you and I, by the power of the Holy Spirit, bring heaven to earth, if you will. We give this world a glimpse of the kingdom of God, where there will be no more of the effects of sin. When we, by the power of that Spirit, fight the effects of sin. When we feed the hungry, and when we help heal the sick, and when we fight the injustice and oppression in our midst. So we build the kingdom by doing what Jesus did, but we build the kingdom also by teaching what Jesus taught, and that's really significant. But what did Jesus teach? Because immediately you want to run and say, okay, Jesus taught about the forgiveness of sins, which he did. Jesus taught about how to be free from guilt and shame, which he did. Jesus taught about how to become a member of the family of God, which he did. Jesus taught about how to know today that if you were to die, you'd go to heaven. He did, he did, he did. He taught all of those things, but that was all part and parcel of a greater message, and the greater message is the kingdom. The message is the kingdom, and that is primarily what Jesus taught about and how to become a citizen of it through the forgiveness and the freedom and the adoption and the eternal life that is ours by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. The message, the project, the vision is the kingdom. 
And that's what he's building through wide awake people and wide awake churches. And what we're going to learn today as we come back around this idea is that he oftentimes builds his kingdom through really unexpected ways. I mean, things that we would never have foreseen, things that we would never have embraced, things that we would never have thought of, things that are way beyond our imagination, and yet he calls us to a different kind of imagination. Christ often builds his kingdom through sinful things, through tragic things, through devastating things, things that we've done, things that have been done to us, things that have just happened experiences that we suppress, things we might not want to talk about, things that might be in some dark corner of some dark closet, some dark place in our hearts. And it's like, surely he could not use that. But he does. All the time he does. Jesus builds his kingdom. He's building it through wide awake people. And just so you know, just a little newsflash, he does it oftentimes in very, very, very unexpected ways. And Luke, who writes the book of Acts, makes that incredibly clear to us, for example, in the story of Stephen. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And it's a story that I'm going to pick up at in verse 8 of chapter 6. And Luke says this, and I'm going to get two words in and stop, so just so you know. Okay, he says, and Stephen. And I'm stopping there because, believe it or not, Luke is telling us more than just the name of this guy, which is Stephen. What he's telling us about this guy, Stephen, is that Stephen is in all likelihood a Jew, but he's not a Jew from Palestine. He is not primarily, or at least as a first language, a Hebrew-speaking Palestinian Jew, okay? He's not from the Holy Land, if you will, but he's a Jew who hails from somewhere outside of Palestine and primarily is a Greek-speaking Jew. He's a Hellenistic, Greek-speaking, not-from-Palestine Jew. And the reason we know that is because Stephen is a Greek name. And here's the thing, and this you've got to pick up on this. No self-respecting Palestinian-born... Holy Land-born, Hebrew or Aramaic-speaking Jew would have ever named their child Stephen because they would have never given their child a Greek name. The reality is that these Hellenistic Greek-speaking Jews, like Stephen, were basically looked at as second-class citizens, and that was true within first-century Judaism, but it was also true, shameful as it is to admit, within the first-century church, the church pastored by the apostles. And that's how the whole story of Stephen starts. If you know the story, what happens is the church has to administer help to all of these widows because, you know, they didn't have life insurance back in those days, okay? They had no incomes. They had no people to take care of them. They're the poorest of the poor, and if the church doesn't care for them, they go uncared for. But what happened within the first century church is some preferences were given. And the preferences were for the widows of the Palestinian Hebrew-speaking first-class Jews. And see, the Hellenistic, Greek-speaking, second-class Jewish widows then raised a complaint, which the apostles investigated and apparently had some merit because they then ordained the first class of deacons. And what was the mission of the deacons? It is to administer the mercy ministry of the church, which is a hugely significant deal. Think about this. Jesus said to us, he said, look, here's how the world is going to know that you belong to me. They're going to know by the way you treat each other, by the love that you have one for another. It's a ginormously important task. And practically speaking, once they handed that off, what that did is that freed the apostles and and the elders of the church to do what they're called to do, to teach, to lead, to, to pray. And what happened is that the church grew from a sinful thing, from a tragic thing, from, at least in the lives of some of these people, a devastating thing, from prejudice. Can you imagine I'm pretty sure they didn't have anybody in any of their church meetings stand up and say, you know what, I have a church growth idea. Here's the thing. We can advance the kingdom of God in this world if we just had a little more prejudice. 
and we drum up some discrimination. Let's, I'm thinking these people, easy targets. But that's what Christ does. He takes that which is wicked and he brings good out of it. He is constantly redeeming. Our God is ironic. He does this all the time. And Stephen, this guy that we're looking at, was one of those first deacons. So Luke tells us, he says, and Stephen, and then he says this, full of grace and power. And again, you've got to stop. Why? Because he's giving us the markers of a truly great man. He's giving us the markers of a great kingdom builder. Stephen is not an insignificant guy within the context of the church. He's huge. He's a model. Luke spends a ton of time just talking about this guy, this event, his big, long sermon, his whole deal. But he's nothing in his society. He's a Hellenistic, Greek-speaking Christian, which makes him a whole level, another level of low, second-class Jew who waits tables for widows. That is not an opinion leader in the culture. He's not a guy they're looking, you know, for leadership from. This is not somebody that is thought very highly of within the context of his culture, and yet within the context of the kingdom, very highly exalted man. And that is a challenge to every one of us to take a look at our lives and to figure out which one we care more about. Because I think that most of us spend most of our lives, and we're taught to do it from birth, you know, I mean, just to orient our whole life to becoming a big deal in the context of the culture, a big deal in the context of the society, a big deal in the world, if you will, to the exclusion, frankly, oftentimes, of becoming a big deal with regard to the kingdom-building activity of God. Stephen's a big deal in that regard, and that is an eternal big deal. He's a kingdom builder. And so Luke says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, meaning the power of the Holy Spirit, and don't miss this now, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And Luke begins now to lay out a pattern, which if you're familiar with the pattern of the story of Jesus, ought to begin to start looking pretty familiar to you. Here comes this guy and he bursts out on the scene and he's full of grace and he's full of power and he's not doing like little signs and miracles. He's doing, Luke says, great signs and miracles. So the blind see and the deaf hear and the mute speak and the leper is cleansed and the lame walk and, you know, I mean, just add it up. He's a big miracle worker. So here comes Stephen. He busts out on the scene full of grace and truth, doing great wonders and signs. And then... Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, meaning the Hellenistic Greeks, the second-class Jews, his own kind, rose up and disputed with Stephen, and they did it verbally first. They come to this guy and they try to trap him in his words, but it doesn't work. That was plan A. And it fails because it says, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. That sound familiar? Here comes the man full of grace and power, doing great miracles, comes to his own people, rejected by his own people, 
First, they try to trap him in his words. Doesn't work because they're undone by his wisdom. And then what's, what happens next in the pattern? Oh, I think we know what the deal is. They then conspire against him and bring the false charge of blasphemy. My goodness, it lines up virtually identically. And here it is. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. It's all a lie. But it's the lie they bring against Stephen. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said this, man never ceases to speak words against this holy place. But what is the holy place? Because it's hugely important. The holy place is the temple in Israel. That's the charge. This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, and Luke, I think, is almost calling you to stop there and go, and that's the guy I want you to see. That's the pattern I want you to realize. Guys, this is the same counsel that condemned Jesus. This is the same pattern of activity. Jesus, again, bursts out on the scene, full of grace and power, doing all kinds of miracles, not little ones, great ones, like no one else. He comes to his own people, you know, and you would expect, I mean, of all the people that he'd get some help from, no, he's rejected by them. Plan A, trap him in his words. Well, they're undone by his wisdom. That doesn't work. Plan B, conspire against him. File the false charge of blasphemy and accuse him of wanting to destroy the temple. But here's the really kind of interesting piece is what happens next in the pattern of Christ? He appears before the council and then they execute him. So what happens next with Stephen? Same deal. And Stephen knows it's coming every bit as much as we do. Stunning. It says, then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses. Now think about this, because this is a sinful thing. This is a tragic thing. This is about to be a way devastating thing. You know, I mean, this is a thing beyond our imagination to consider that God might actually use it to build a church. I promise you, again, no other church meeting did anybody stand up and go, uh, you know, my discrimination idea didn't catch a lot of flight, but here I've got another idea. I think that Stephen should be killed. And that will advance the building of the kingdom of God because he's a worker of great miracles. We don't need a guy like that. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God, and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. We've heard all this before somewhere. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against the temple and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, you ought to be remembering him at this point, will destroy this temple and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And I thought about that this week, and I thought, good grief, could they not come up with something more original? I mean, it, this almost unmasks them, doesn't it? It's so clearly their modus operandi. And maybe they could have, but they sure could not have come up with something more effective. This worked for Jesus. This will work for Stephen. Pretty much anybody. Why? Why? What's the temple? I mean, what is this all about? What is threatened here? What does the temple represent to these people? You know, I mean, if you think about it for a minute, I think what it represents, at least in part, is their whole way of life. It represents, to some degree, their kingdom. 
I mean, their whole economy, the center of it, the temple. Their social system, well, its center was the temple. Their traditions, their teachings, their identity as a nation and as a people, it's the temple, it's the temple. It's all about the temple. Want to get them fired up? Mess with the temple. And you know, if you think about it, the gospel of Jesus did, in fact, threaten the temple. It did, not to destroy it, but it did, in fact, threaten the temple because what happens at the temple? Sacrifices, right? But wait a minute, what is Jesus? He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ and his sacrifice is the sacrifice that every sacrifice in the Old Testament, in the tabernacle, in the temple, all of those sacrifices are pointing forward, pointing forward, pointing forward to the sacrifice, and that is the sacrifice of Christ. And once that sacrifice has been done, do you need any more sacrifices? No, in fact, it's blasphemous. So the whole sacrificial system is out the window. Uh Uh-oh. What about the priesthood? Do you need that anymore? Isn't Jesus our high priest? Are we not, ourselves, through faith in Christ, able to do what the high priest of Israel did and able to do it not once a year, but to do it any time to boldly enter into the presence of the throne of God himself? So do we need the priesthood anymore? What about the building? Do we need that? Because it was stunningly beautiful. It was one of the wonders of the world. When the Romans came up against Jerusalem, they looked at it from Mount Scopus, and, and the, general, the Roman general said, don't destroy this, it's so beautiful. But a fire broke out, melted all the gold, and even as Jesus predicted, every stone was overturned so they could get the gold out. It's a stunning prophecy. But do you need the building in light of Christianity? No. Why? Because we're the temple. We are the living stones inhabited by the Spirit of God himself, being built up, Peter says, into this holy habitation of the Lord. And then you look at the kingdom that's coming, this kingdom that we're called to give the world a glimpse of by fighting against the effects of sin and by preaching forgiveness of sin. Well, I mean, when you look at that in the book of Revelation, it says there is no temple for the Lord himself is the temple. So you don't need the building either. You kind of get the idea. But they weren't charging all of that. You see, they were just coming and saying he threatens to destroy the temple. They took a statement of Christ where he said, tear down this temple and I'll build it up again in three days. And they got all confused and said, what? It took us 46 years to build this temple. How can you do that? And he's talking about his body, you see. They're taking his words out of context. They're using it against him very purposefully to get rid of Jesus. And in this case, to get rid of of Stephen. If you want to get rid of Jesus or you want to get rid of Stephen, just threaten their way of life. Threaten their kingdom. And the truth is not much has changed. You know, I think one of the things, maybe the biggest thing that keeps people away from Jesus or keeps people from engaging in the kingdom building activity of Jesus is the threat to their way of life. It's the threat to their kingdom, if you will, their temple. You know, it's kind of this perceived understanding or or inherent understanding that if we get a little too close to Jesus, then he's this threat to us in some sense. I mean, he's going to ask us to deal with this particular sin that we've got going on in our life that, you know, frankly, we don't really want to deal with. By the way, he will ask you to deal with it. And then he'll help you to deal with it. And then he himself will become to you far more than whatever you're getting from that sin. That's the piece we seem to miss. You know, we look at our lifestyles, we look at our bank accounts, and we say to ourselves, well, you know, I mean, if I get too close to Jesus, 
he's going to be a threat to this. And, and in some sense, I guess the answer to that is, yeah, that's true. But he will become for you a security that is far greater than a God that does not disappoint. We look at our plans and our agendas and our lifestyles and we get everything planned out, you know, or at least we did until the last couple of years and now we're replanning. But we had everything planned out and it's like I'm getting close to retirement and I've got it all figured out and this is going to be the deal and I'm going to play golf three times a week and you're going to do this and, you know, you know, and you're, it's like, and I know if I get a little too close to Jesus and I get a little too serious about this whole thing and I start wanting to be a kingdom builder because, you know, that's what he calls me to be. Well, all of a sudden that's all up in the air too, you know, or maybe you're young and you're thinking, no, Jesus is when I'm close to death. That's when I'm going to get serious about him. And so you'll waste your life until then, because that's what it is. Christ gives us the ability to invest our families, our businesses, our reputations, our bank accounts, our little lives and our little life stories that don't mean a whole heck of a lot apart from him in something that means everything. And something that lasts long beyond the grave. One of the quotes I read this week was from Francis Schaeffer, and uh, he said something 40 years ago. I want to read it to you, and you need to kind of think it through, you know, as I read it to you. He said, evangelicalism in America, now hang on now, evangelicalism, that's the kingdom-building opportunity of God, if you will, the kingdom-building activity of God by his Spirit in America. By the way, that's where we are. Okay, so evangelicalism in America, and then he uses a really severe word. He says died. Not got sick started feeling a little queasy, had the swine flu, was down for a while, came back. It's none of that. He says evangelicalism in America died when evangelicals took upon themselves not the greatest goal of their Savior, but the greatest goal of the upper middle class of America. And then he enumerates what they are, safety, prosperity, and well-being. And if you're really honest, come on now, that is an issue. It certainly is for me. Is there anything wrong with safety? No, I highly recommend safety. I look both ways before I cross the street, you know, all kinds of stuff. I'm big on safety. Is there anything wrong with prosperity? Absolutely nothing wrong with prosperity. Nothing wrong with that. Is there anything wrong with well-being? No, I wish well-being upon all of us. I really do. Hope we all have it. Hope we all enjoy it. But there is something seriously wrong if that is the goal of our lives. There is something more important than safety, prosperity, and well-being in this life. And it's the building of the kingdom of God. And Stephen knows it. So here's Stephen, and he's seen the pattern. He's before the same council that executed the same pattern against Christ. And, well, he knows the next step of the pattern is death. And Luke describes his face. Verse 15, it says, And gazing at him, Stephen, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Why? Because Stephen was living for a different kind of safety and a different kind of prosperity and a different kind of well-being. And Stephen knew that no man, no crowd, no council, no one, and no thing could take that away from him. That's why. It's stunning. I think it was Jim Elliott who said this. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. What can't you keep? What is it? I mean, what, what can you not keep? What do you lose when you die? Because everything you lose when you die, you can't keep. 
That kind of narrows it down, doesn't it? It's like, oh, okay, yeah. I mean, including our own lives. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Stephen is going to die here in a second. That's where the story's going in case you're just waking up. And here's the thing. He's not going to lose. He's going to gain. So they drag him before the council, and instead of appealing for his life, he preaches a really long sermon, which is never good. Okay? I mean, it's just, nobody ever likes that. No one. It's like, good grief, it's another point, you know. He tells another stupid story, I'm going to die, you know. He tells this really long sermon. It's the longest sermon recorded by Luke in the book of Acts. And it is pretty much guaranteed to get him killed. I just want to read you the punchline. Just the punchline. Here's how he wraps it up. His concluding point. He says, you stiff-necked people. So he's going back into the Old Testament and he's pulling out the language that God has used very critically of the predecessors of these guys. And he's applying it now to them. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. He's saying, you spiritually dead people. You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they understand these guys in Jesus' day were critical of their fathers for persecuting the prophets. They thought they were different. And he's saying, oh no, you're not only just like them, you're worse He says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you have now killed, betrayed, and murdered. He's like, you just killed your own Messiah, guys. Way to go. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Some of you guys think I'm direct. You know, that's direct. Shockingly direct. My goodness. And here comes their response, and it's very predictable. It says, when they heard these things, they were enraged. Well, that's a mystery. And they ground their teeth at him. I love these little extra comments, you know. But really, I mean, they're, they're upset. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. And don't miss this, because he sees a vision of God. And he saw the glory of God and Jesus, what? Standing as if to greet him, as if to acknowledge the willing sacrifice of this man's life. He's the first Christian martyr. Number one. So he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then Stephen said to these same men who had condemned Jesus to death. He says, behold, I see the heavens opened. And the Son of Man, Jesus, standing where? At the right hand of God, which is really poignant when you rewind the tape back to Luke's gospel and you go back to this exact same place in the exact same pattern, but only in the life of Christ, and you find Jesus before these same guys who are about to condemn him to death and execute him, just like they're doing here with Stephen, and you hear what Jesus said to them in that moment. Listen to what he said. Luke 21, verse 69, he said, From now on, the Son of Man shall be seated, where? At the right hand of the power of God. And so Stephen looks into heaven, and he sees the Lord. And he says to these same guys who know the pattern, they put it together. 
the same thing in the same place in the pattern that they had previously heard from Christ. He says, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And you know they had to know what was going on. And instead of repenting, what it says is, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears. You know, they went, la, 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 la. They don't want to hear about Jesus. Why? Because he's a threat. He's a threat to their power. He's a threat to their prestige. He's a threat to their, you know, business. He's a, threat to, he's a threat to them. Their little way of life, their little world, their little kingdom. And they'll reject eternal things in favor of that. And we do too. It says, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. Well, there it is. And, you know, here's the deal. If, if you didn't have that vision of Christ where Jesus is standing, you know, obviously in approval, you kind of would sort of think, I mean, if you think about it, that maybe Stephen wasn't such a great kingdom builder after all because what a failure. He comes to his own people. He can do miracles, and they reject him. That's significant. I'm thinking miracle working would be pretty helpful. You know, I'm starting a Bible study. I'd like you to come. I notice you're limping. Now you're not going to have any trouble walking to my house. Hey, I want to tell you about this Jesus, but first, let me heal your sick child. Hey, you know what? I see that you're on your deathbed, and I want to offer you eternal life, but first let me bring you back to life. That's not a little thing. But he's rejected. He preaches exactly one sermon, as far as we know anyway, and it's way too long. And it gets him killed. And that's not the response any pastor is really looking for, I don't think. Really. And what we haven't read, but what's really important to the story, is that this sermon of Stephen not only brings persecution on him, on himself, which ends in his death, but it brings persecution on the entire church in Jerusalem, so much so that many of them have to flee the city for their lives. And they go out to these outlying areas of Jerusalem called Judea and Samaria. Is he a failure or what? And yet Jesus stands. And not only does Jesus stand, but then we read, if we're reading carefully, we see some things. It says, and the witnesses to the stoning laid down their garments. Now, the way this deal worked is they would have pulled him outside of the town and there would have been some kind of a pit or a ledge or something. About, it's generally said to be the height of two men. So probably, you know, like 10, 12 feet. They were short in those days. 10 to 12 feet. And they would have pushed him, but one of the witnesses would have pushed him. You're going to be a witness. It's a capital offense. You get to do the killing is the idea. They want you to be sincere. So one of the false witnesses pushed him. And the other guy would pick up a big stone and he would drop it on his chest. And if that didn't kill him, then they'd pelt him until he died. So they take off their garments, these two witnesses, and they lay down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. That's really huge. And as they were stoning this guy, Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit, which kind of tells you he sees the pattern because that's what Jesus calls out. As he's being executed and falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, that which our Lord also cried out from the cross, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then it says, when he had said this, he fell asleep. And you're like, but I thought he died. He did. But for the Christian, death is like sleep. 
It's a sleep that we expect to wake up from, renewed and refreshed, when our Lord brings his kingdom in all of its fullness. So is Stephen a failure? No. But why is Stephen not a failure? Because God builds his kingdom oftentimes in incredibly unexpected ways. See, what happens is this persecution drives these Christians who otherwise would have stayed in Jerusalem out of Jerusalem and into Judea and Samaria, which, interestingly enough, is what Jesus had said to these guys. I want you to start in Jerusalem, then I want you to go to Judea and Samaria, then I want you to go to the ends of the earth. It took persecution to get them out. But when they left, they took the gospel with them, and the kingdom was built. And it was built, ironically, as a result of the sinful wicked, tragic, devastating execution of this man. And not only that, this guy Saul, who saw in Stephen in the moment of death the face of an angel, and who saw in his willing sacrifice of his life, I mean, clearly he was not preaching to be let out of the deal. A cause and a kingdom worth living and dying for. That guy Saul, not long into the story of Acts from here, becomes the Apostle Paul, who then takes the gospel almost single-handedly to the end of the earth. And I promise you, there was nobody in any church meeting who said, um, I think we need some persecution. That's the way to build the kingdom. And yet it is. Jesus Christ is building his kingdom, and that is his goal. His project, his dream, and nothing less than that is his vision. And he's building his kingdom, even today, by his spirit, through churches and people that are awake to what his spirit is doing. And he's building his kingdom through people who care less about the safety and prosperity and well-being of this world than they do of the next. Through people who care less for their kingdom in the here and now than they care for the kingdom of God that never ends. And through people who are willing to take the sinful, tragic, and devastating things that have happened to them in life, or maybe even that they've done, or that shifts, maybe they've just experienced, and to offer them along with everything else unto God, and to allow him to take those things, and to redeem them, to bring good out of them, and with them, to advance and to build his kingdom in this world. See, our Lord is building his kingdom, and he wants to do it through me, and he wants to do it through you. The only question is how, which is why we're so big on find your thing and do your thing. Figure out how God has made you to build his kingdom in this season of your life. And maybe it's born out of tragedy, and maybe it isn't. But then do it. Okay, let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are a God who redeems. And you don't just redeem people, you redeem bad things. And you take and you bring out of that good stuff. We praise you for the world that is to come. That's free from hunger and sickness and poverty and death and sin and divorce and all of the things that tear us up. We praise you, Lord, for that. And we praise you for the opportunity now that going out and doing what our Savior did and teaching what our Savior taught, we can have the privilege of taking our little lives and folding them into your big, big plan, into the bringing of that kingdom 
into the revealing of the glory of the Savior of that kingdom to this world. And I pray that you would not let go of us until we do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.